and welcome to the second iteration of the IFLR Closer Conditions podcast. I'm John Crabb, Managing Editor of IFLR and Practice Insight, and I'm joined today by someone who needs very little introduction, Mr. Tom Whip of Morgan Stanley. As well as his role as Chairman of International Securities at the Investment Bank, Tom chairs the Alternative Reference Rate Committee, the ARC. Uh, for those of you who follow the LIBOR transition in any way, you'll know exactly who the ARC are and what they do. And for those of you who don't, it's probably time you got on with it. You've not got very long left. For the the last two or three years, we've been covering the library transition pretty extensively through our sister publication, Practice Insight. In fact, this isn't the first time we've interviewed Tom, and it likely won't be the last. The ARC has been spearheading the transition to the secure overnight financing rate, or SOFA, for some time. And ever since taking over from Sandy O'Connor in 2019, Tom has been in charge of that. It's a pleasure to have you with us today, Tom. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, I know your time is very much in demand, so I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you very much. Thanks for the invite, John. Of course. Um, so rather than sit on ceremony, I'm just going to jump straight into questions. Um, so kicking off with a few kind of easier ones to get us going and then on to the more technical stuff later on. Um, so everybody listening should really know that LIBOR is on the verge of its cessation date at the end of the year for most of the world and in June 2023 for US dollar LIBOR contacts. However, the guidance from the authorities is that there should be or can be no more new issuances of US dollar LIBOR by the end of this year. So in your view, what are the key outstanding obstacles for no new dollar LIBOR by the end of 2021? And how convinced are you that the market is on track to meet this deadline? Well, John, I think there's nothing like a deadline. And I think as we've gotten, the, as you noted, the supervisory guidance for no new LIBOR, we would assume that between now and the end of the year, you know, the, the economic incentives will fall into place to the, to the degree that we're going to find uh, that uh, that many of these uh, many of these uh, initiatives are now kind of coming to a close as people begin to see this. I mean, certainly there are going to be liquidity changes. We would expect LIBOR liquidity to go down, SOFA liquidity to go up. So I think that, you know, in terms of the programs, I think the realization of no new LIBOR will happen in the next several months completely. The markets will then, uh, you know, create the efficiencies they need to uh, get to the end. So I think right now it's really just a matter of more people focusing on using SOFR uh, and not relying on as much on fallbacks as we have for the last couple of years. So some sources have suggested that the delay that came early this year that was to kind of postpone US, the U.S. transition to June 2023 for a number of U.S. dollar LIBOR tenors has given the market a reason to further delay their efforts, has removed the imminent threat of losing the benchmark, which has therefore given them a full sense of reprieve. Do you agree with this? And what do you say to those doubters? John, I, th I think where we, we left this was uh, that there was a lot to unpack with those series of announcements that we got last year. And certainly, if you if you if you had if you didn't feel like you were ready for this transition, uh, it felt like a reprieve with the additional eighteen months tacked on out to June of twenty twenty three. But for for U.S. banks and U.K. banks and others. Uh, under global regulation, it was made very clear that no new production of LIBOR was there. So when you put it all together, what was created, I think appropriately, was a, a roll down opportunity for the market. So this corridor between the end of this year, where we stopped digging the hole officially with supervisory guidance, and how many, how many contracts mature between now and then, will create a much longer runway and I think a safer runway. So in our latest, uh, in our latest report, from the ARC, we, we noted that, you know, about 67% of the $225 trillion in outstanding contracts will mature before 2023, June of 2023. That will put us in a position that we will uh, have all 
avoided having to go through the fallbacks, have organically matured a, a big portion of the risk, and the remainder then we'll use the ISDA fallback protocol, we'll use ARC fallbacks. But in the meantime, between the end of this year, SOFR will build. So we're really kind of creating a bridge. So I think all things considered where progress was at that point, I think this was very appropriate, but we shouldn't mistake it for a reprieve. It's really just an ability for the market to organically roll down, stop digging the hole and start using SOFR more actively. So are you happy with the, the volumes of use in SOFR so far? Well, I think, you know, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about the, the SOFR First initiative, but right now, certainly uh, at the ARC, we've gone through a series of iterations on where we think SOFR activity is as it relates to our ability to deliver a forward-looking term SOFR. So right now, I think that we, we would like to see a lot more, but it's really product by product. So the floating rate note market has taken on SOFR in a, in a very meaningful way. Obviously, uh, the derivatives markets, uh, futures markets doing pretty well, derivatives markets building, but certainly no Nowhere near what we see on LIBOR. Uh, loan markets have been, you know, certainly a bit of a challenge. Uh, but as we go through all of these things, there are areas of the market where SOFR is, is gaining a very strong foothold, uh, but I think a lot more to do. Okay. Uh, so you just mentioned the SOFR first concept, which was spoken about at the uh, New York Fed SOFR Symposium earlier in the week, which you were in attendance at. So could you tell me more about that initiative and why you think it's so important in this kind of push to get more people to use SOFR? Yeah, John, it goes right back to the original point is that we need to jumpstart the market. We got to get the markets moving to SOFR more quickly to give us a good runway to the end of this year when we have no new LIBOR. So the idea of SOFR first is to have the inner dealer broker screens change their uh, quoting conventions from LIBOR to SOFR on July 26th. LIBOR will remain on the screen for informational purposes until October 22nd, at which point that will go off the screen. And that will encourage people in the market to, again, transact among the dealers, which should bring more liquidity to SOFR, more benefits to clients who want to use SOFR, who currently now have to pay a bit of a premium to execute in SOFR, and bring the markets to where we need to get them to. So this is a critical path that we're doing. This was done under the auspices of the uh, Market Risk Advisory Committee at the at the CFTC. Uh, as, you, as I'm sure you saw at the symposium, is, is strong official sector support for this. This is a great sort of, you know, public-private initiative to get things off the ground, get the liquidity we need. And as importantly, this is this is a very direct path to term sulfur, which has been uh, noted as very important uh, development that we need in the lending markets. So the, the derivatives market and the lending markets are now beginning to intersect in a really productive way. So all eyes on July 26th with, uh, with uh, uh, sulfur first, leading to term sulfur. And this is a path that's been pretty well worn in the UK under the Sonia first. Uh, so we're not being all that original here. The Sonia First initiative has been an incredible success in the UK. And as we've done in the past with a lot of these initiatives, we look around the world uh, at the ARC and we all look to each other for best practices that have worked. Sonia First worked incredibly well. Uh, we feel that we're looking for the same type of success with SOFR First. So you just mentioned term rates, which have been a kind of paramount discussion in the LIBOR transition for well over a year now. Um, but it does appear that in the US, a solution has been found with CME's futures as an option. Um, so do, do you think the market will opt for CME futures rather than use alternatives like BSBY or ISO for futures? And can it, how pleased were you with this solution? 
Yeah, we're. I think you know from from the Arcs perspective, we selected Sulfur as the most robust alternative to LIBOR. Uh, we did that after a two year consultation. We had always planned on delivering the market a term Sulfur, but that was always a uh, very much a state dependent uh, development. We wanted to make sure that the market itself had enough underliers to support this. Because if you go back to first principles, John, all we're trying to solve to is what was broken with LIBOR, and that was an underlying tr- set of transactions that was, uh, you know tiny compared to the amount of contracts that rested on it. So we don't want to ever, you know, sort of recreate the you know, the problems we had with LIBOR. So our goal was to get a term SOFR out there. Uh, we needed the derivatives market to pick up a little bit more. We're starting to see really productive things. So from the ARCS perspective, first, we told the market that we weren't ready to deliver in June. We then shortly followed with the principles that we would employ to create a term sofa. So the market now knows what we're looking for. Then we followed shortly thereafter with a set of market indicators, which told the market specifically what we would need to see to uh, recommend a term sofa. In the meantime, uh, on a parallel path, CME began producing their term sofa, uh, and they noted that they were following the ARC principles on that. And then once we had completed our RFP process, we also announced that when we endorse, uh, it's going to be CME. So we now have an administrator. So people who want to use term SOFR can now look to the CME term rate, begin to model it and do the things they need to do to prepare. And as soon as we get to these market indicators, the most important one of all being SOFR first, we'll be able to deliver that in days, not weeks following that. So we think that covers, you know, in our opinion, all products. you know, as we look at this overall, we suspect that, you know, people will want to build on durable rates. And these other discussions, uh, uh, John, are uniquely uh, U.S. driven. We haven't had these discussions. Every other country in the world who's going through these transitions has used risk-free rates. So we believe that that's the best path, uh, but that's sort of where it stands today and uh, certainly, uh, you know, uh, more to come. So do you think or do you expect that CME terms so far will be available for unfettered use in both legacy and new loans by the third quarter of this year? And will CME terms so far be allowed for use in swaps, hedging cash products that also use terms so far? So the ARC has also said that we're going to try to deliver some just broad recommendations or best practices on use cases. But certainly, I believe that if we can get SOFR first completed in July, we've said that we would be days, not weeks away from in, uh, recommending that ter- CME term SOFR. So I believe it'll be available. And you've touched on, I think, the important element is why the ARC endorsement is so important, is that's what we point to in our ARC fallback language. So the first step in the waterfall, if you're using ARC fallback language, is term SOFR and ARC term SOFR. The second piece is that for the New York State legislative path, which deals with our tough legacy problems uh, in New York State jurisdiction, also points to the, the ARC endorsed term rate. So the, the, the importance of this is high, which is why we've held a pretty high standard to this. And that's why we're going to take this forward in a way that we want to deliver this to the market sooner rather than later. And it's very clear that market participants, particularly in some of the lending markets, are going to be reliant on this. So we want to be smart about it. We're going to be coming out with some, you know, some recommendations on what we think are the best uses of this. But by no means are we going to be overly prescriptive because, you know, as you know, everything we do at the ARC is really just to put out best practices and point people to what we think is the safest path forward. And are you expecting competition for, for this time rate? Um, similar to how the UK for time so far, there was a lot more competition than there has been here. The authorities are synchronized, it seems, on so many levels. So why did the ARC choose a different approach to the UK's FCA with this particular topic? 
I think I think from our perspective, you know, we, we all these roads eventually intersect. We all started at different starting points. We have different legal jurisdictions. The UK has been, you know, has a has sort of benchmark regulation. We don't have that in the US. We're dealing across, you know, significantly more regulators uh, than the UK. So and I host a call monthly with all the currency heads and we kind of talk about what's working and what's not working. So I think everyone has a tough legacy problem. The solution in the UK is a path to synthetic LIBOR. The solution in the US is legislative, New York State and hopefully federal. We're all attacking this set of problems the same way. Getting a term rate and what it's going to be used for will be pretty significant in the UK as, a, as it relates to synthetic LIBOR. In the US, our term rate will be very significant as it relates to ARC fallbacks and to New York State legislation. So our view on this was that we felt it was smart to just to designate someone where I think in the UK, it was a different approach was to allow these things to develop uh, in beta and get a good view of it. Uh, you know, I, I don't know either one, you know, work better than the other, but certainly, uh, you know, we look at the UK, we're following a lot of, it was, again, we're following a lot of the path that we've seen in the UK. It's been pretty productive. Uh, so we're, we're, we all, my guess is we're all going to arrive at the same place, slightly different times and slightly different paths. But I think the global picture will look very, very well coordinated when we get to the end of this work. Okay. So going back to the U.S. then, you just mentioned the um, obviously the New York budget legislated for the fallbacks. Did you expect and you're kind of hopeful for the same thing to happen on the federal level? You expect that that is going to be managed on the Hill and how do you kind of hope to see that play out? It's truly one of the we think one of the you know sort of bipartisan issues that, that, that exists, right? The idea that absent legislation, uh, you know, all sorts of disputes and litigation and things will happen among market participants who never anticipated the end of LIBOR. So, you know, when we talk about how we've crafted this stuff, we've crafted this to say, we're not looking to, you know, to change the sanctity of contracts. We're not looking to change anything other than the fact that when we come to a cliff, the ARC legislation builds a bridge. So our specific work is to say, if there's no fallback, use the ARC fallback language. If your fallback is to LIBOR, use use the ARC fallback language. And then we offer some safe harbor options for those who want to opt in and use the ARC fallback language. So what we've given is consistency to the market, whereas in a lot of these cases on the really tough legacy, one side or the other has enormous uh, power, or we also deal with things where even those on both sides of this would like to solve it, but there's no operational mechanism to, like in the, in, in the bond markets where in the U.S. you need 100% bondholder approval to change a reference rate. That can't happen uh, when we look at the nature of where these bonds are placed. So investors and issuers would love to solve it, but they actually can't. And that's where the ARC steps in with the legislation. So from our perspective, uh, the federal legislation you know, we want it to be equal or better to what we've done in New York. We also have a second path, which we could go state by state, looking at where those exposures are and take it that way as well. But our, our view on this would be, uh, we think that this is something that it, that benefits when you think about who gets impacted from consumers to pensioners, money, work your way through the whole spectrum of investors. This is the best way to solve that last piece of the puzzle. So you alluded to this earlier, but a lot has been said during this whole process that the um, simply recreating LIBOR under the auspices of another product with a different name is is not the right solution. And the ARC has been very clear that that is not its solution. Um, it has no intention to doing this. So other than the weaknesses that allowed LIBOR to be manipulated in the first place, 
what would you say was kind of fundamentally wrong with the way that the rate was calculated and why couldn't those problems just be fixed? The way we've tried to approach this at the ARC is, is to go back to how we got here. So we went out and said, we are trying to solve the problems that existed in LIBOR, which was at one point, 400 trillion in, in, in financial contracts resting on less than a billion dollars in underlying trades, sometimes six trades a day, sometimes no trades a day, the gap being filled by expert judgment across the panel banks, right? And that's what created the weaknesses in LIBOR and that's what created the issues that we saw with LIBOR. So our goal at the ARC and I think all the other currency groups around the world was to find rates that were 100% based on transactions that could be calculated in, in case of uh, SOFR by the New York Fed, an unassailable administrator who gathers the trades, puts these rates out, calculates the rates and produces them in a fashion uh, that is extremely consistent. ARC, uh, ARC chose SOFR because there's a, over a trillion dollars in underlying transactions that support that rate every day. Uh, and we went through a two-year consultation with the market. But our goal was to create something that was foundationally strong, that would work through markets, both good and bad, stressed and, and normal, and would give people a chance to have a good history to look back on, to model it, but to make sure that whatever we had was a strong foundation to rest in the US nearly 225 trillion in, in financial contracts. That was our goal. And we chose SOFR because it was the most robust discussion. The discussions we hear about some of the other alternatives were discussions that were had at the ARC nearly seven years ago and discussions that have been had in other places prior to this. And there doesn't seem to be an easy solution. So from our perspective, what we're telling people from the ARC and suggesting to them is know what's in your reference rate understand how it's constructed because had we done that with LIBOR, we might not have ever gotten to this point. Know what's in your reference rate, understand the construction, understand the calculations, understand what the underliers are, understand who the administrator is, and understand most importantly, how it would perform in times of stress. We have, a, we have you know, uh, for good or bad, we have a stress point in March of 2020, which is a great place to take any rate that you're looking at and just overlay how it might have performed at that point. But we should never forget, we don't wanna repeat the mistakes uh, that we had with LIBOR, which is small data sets supporting large amounts, uh, large amounts of financial contracts. So our, our guidance from the ARC is we chose SOFR because we believe it to be the most robust alternative. And for those who are looking at other alternatives, know what's in your reference rate, understand it completely, and make sure it's something that you believe will be durable over the life of your trade and will perform in the way people understand and won't be subject to some of these other things. We look at things, you know, I mean, from a high level, we look at things that are based on money markets. Uh, we look at, you know, the, the potential for, uh, you know, money market reform that we've heard a lot from US regulators. So there's a lot of questions to be answered, but we think market participants should do their homework, understand how these things work and make smart decisions based on that for their own organizations. So the next topic I'd like to address is credit sensitive spreads, which is something I've heard you discuss in great length at many events over the years. Um, so the ARC has workshops dedicated to the issue and much has been said about the value of adding one to SOFA. Um, so in our discussions here at IFLR, some sources have suggested that interest in credit sensitive spreads use has perhaps grown recently because term SOFA was delayed. And that once the term rate is properly adopted, it might threaten the existence and call into question the need for credit sensitive spreads at all. Do you agree with this? Is this something you've heard? I think, yeah, I think we've kind of looked at the idea that, you know, 
if if there were market participants who were waiting for term sold for an our inability to deliver that they might have taken a look at some of these other alternatives right so we we feel that's why i think from an arc perspective we have to somewhat we certainly course corrected from where we started in march to where we are today we've heard from the market uh that there is a real need here particularly in some of the lending markets so when we did this in march we put together a term task force term rate task force immediately that group meets once a week and that's the group that delivered the principles the market indicators our rfp working group put forth the suggestion and uh, the arc uh, endorsed the suggestion of cme as the provider so this is moving at a really good pace uh, and i think the idea that now we link sofer first to term sofer in many cases, we have heard from the market that people just want to know that rate up front. They don't want to do the calculations. They don't want to do the compounding. So for anyone who has an operational aversion to compounded SOFR, term SOFR will be very useful to them. And we think that that's a lar large part of the population. So our job here is really to get this derivatives market moving. SOFR first, deliver term SOFR. And then we'll see what's left after that. But it'll be a much better, we'll, we'll know a lot more. It'll be a much better discussion, I think, once we sort of get past that, because we're going to see what market participants just really need to know their rate up front and wh others who may have other needs. So similarly, others on this same topic have suggested that credit-sensitive spreads will only be kind of around for a limited time to, to ease into the transition to reference-free rates for those that are struggling most with the switch in general. Um, what do you think of this approach and do you think a temporary use might be more acceptable for the ARC and for the other authorities? You know, on every one of these things, our, our whole goal from the beginning is we just want to do this once uh, and, and, we want, and we want to complete this work in a way that leaves the market on sound footing going forward. So, you know, things that are short term in nature, things that are building bridges. We, you know, we've been kicking this can for a long time. I think it's a good time to sort of put this together. There's a, there's a, there's a great quote from uh, UCLA basketball coach John Wooden, which is, if you don't have time to, to do it right, when are you going to have time to do it again? Right. I mean, this is it. We, we have an opportunity here to complete this work. The tools are there. And I think we just really need this focus in this last, this last you know couple of couple of steps we have to take to get to the end of this year and i think things we have learned all all the way through this john this entire transition we've learned one thing is that the hypotheticals we worried most about actually weren't the problem if you if you asked us two years ago what was our biggest concern it was that people aren't going to sign the is the protocol people are going to look for the you know who's got the superior legal position and they're going to battle it is the protocol has been a, a resounding success and to me that was the first you know sort of i think you know when we start seeing green shoots it's like people in the market just care about managing their risk in the end so the incentives are there the tools are there it's just a matter of just getting the deadline and i have to say that you know up until andrew bailey's speech in 2017 this was without it without a number without a deadline you know our industry is not going to respond and resource it but now we're coming into the last mile here so i suspect that the resources are there the financial incentives are there everything is in place to take this forward so our view is let's get the tools out there let's get let's get the derivatives market let's see, let's let's use what was so successful in the uk and the us and let's just complete the work because we're you know really the goal is in sight and i think so anything that sort of let's just you know anything that sort of involves kicking the can to sort of ease into it we've had a pretty long runway this work began at the arc in 2014 i think we can finish it on time so I was about to ask you what you thought the next steps are, but I think that's what you just said, so I'm not going to. But I'd say the final question is kind of what advice would you give to, to anyone left in the industry who feels like they're not really up to speed with their transition efforts? 
yeah, I think the view would be let's just risk pri- from the beginning. It's been about risk prioritization. Like, what is the thing? What is the thing that is in your control that can be fixed today? In many cases, it's the loan market. You can you can amend the loan. You can you know you can change documentation. Stop digging the hole. If you're using LIBOR, use SOFR. If there's opportunities to dig things out that you've got, but I think for every organization, whether you started seven years ago or whether you start today, it's get your risk prioritization in order, understand the things that that are in your control that can be dealt with today, understand those things on a basis of what will cause you financial or franchise or conduct harm and get those to the top of the list and get teams around that stuff. A lot the industry is going to do, so there's going to be a lot of help as we approach the second half, but for every individual organization, understand your risks, prioritize them, and do the things that you can do now to begin to mitigate that. Excellent. Unless you have anything else you'd like to say, Tom, I think that's that's all for my questions for today. So thank you so much for your time. John, thank you for the opportunity. And I really, you know, I appreciate the, the chance to speak to this audience to continue to get this message out. We're, we're you know, we're, we're, we're within striking distance. So I appreciate the, your time and thank you. Of course. And good luck with everything. Thank you.